So Money episode 1130, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It's been a minute since we've caught up kind of in real time, right? I'm recording this pretty close to the Friday that you're hearing it. And I don't think we have touched base about everyone's Thanksgiving and how it went. For most of us, it looked very different than Thanksgiving normally looks like. Normally, we travel to the West Coast with my kids to go to San Francisco and see my family, my parents. Um, My brother travels as well from the East Coast to the West Coast. It's a whole thing. It's like a week and change. And we didn't do that this year. Instead, we flew our parents in um, at the very beginning of November. When they came, they quarantined for about five days and they took COVID tests, came back negative, and then they moved in with us until Thanksgiving. And they just left yesterday back to California. And we think that uh, we may not see them for a very long time after now. I mean, it's really, we're heading in for what they're saying is like one of the most difficult times in our country's public health history. These months are going to be really, really hard in many ways. So um, Christmas will probably just be here in New Jersey. We usually travel to Pennsylvania. Um, We haven't even told our in-laws about that. I think they'll understand. I hope they'll understand. But these are the, you know, hard decisions that we have to make. And we just hope that our families will be understanding um, and know that it's not personal, right? But we're just trying to make sure that we take the right steps now so that we can see everybody again soonest, really. Hopeful news on the vaccine front, right? So a lot to look forward to in 2021, but I think that the journey is not yet over and we still need to do all the right things. Wear a mask, wash our hands, keep socially distant. I did a lot of TV watching over the Thanksgiving break. I watched The Undoing on HBO. Has anyone seen this? I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but um, I loved watching this movie. Well, I should say it's like a six part series. It's just a one and done series. There's not going to be another season, Uh, but it stars Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. They play a very rich, not very rich, but like very well to do. And yeah, you could say pretty rich doctor couple on the Upper East Side. Tragedy ensues and it becomes a, a thriller really pretty quickly and a psychological thriller as well. I loved watching this because it really reminded me of New York and the way that things were in New York. It's a beautiful homage to New York City. There are beautiful shots of Central Park and the different neighborhoods, um, the way people used to eat at restaurants, used to go to events together, used to go to school. And it made me really miss the Big Apple. And I hope that it gets its groove back sooner than later. But the show for me was very much um, personal, like getting to see it hit home a lot in some ways, not the murder part, but the just getting to see New York again in its glory. I also thought that the show brought up some interesting financial plot lines or just lines. There was a moment in the show where Nicole Kidman is having a conversation with her father, Donald Sutherland, who's, you know, he's 85 and and just like so iconic, right? With his his eyebrows played like a role in the in the show. And anyway, he, 
Nicole Kidman, I can say, you know, she's in a bit of doo-doo in the show. And um, the father asks her, although he's very rich, he said, are you okay financially? And she says, yes, I'm fine. And you know, she has a trust fund and you know that her father definitely helped her out and continues to help her out. But she's also her own person. She's a psychiatrist, a successful one on the Upper East Side. And having financial independence, now granted part of it, most, most of it may be funded by her family went a very long way in the series in making sure that she always had options, kept her options open. You know, when she had to leave the city to escape because the media was hounding her family and she wanted to kind of get away from the scene of the crime, she could do that. When she needed to, you know, rent a helicopter, she could do that, you know. Anyway, it was it was cool. It was interesting to see uh, rich people be rich. Um, and kind of live vicariously through them a little bit. Although rich people got problems too, if that's for sure. And that was all on display in The Undoing. Check it out. It's cool. It's well done. This week, if you haven't yet checked out our episodes, our interviews, please do. On Monday, we had Deepa Prashathaman and Ra Goddess, who are a dynamic duo, the co-creators of N Formation. It's a first of its kind community that was created by women of color for women of color. It's a membership-based platform that supports high-performing women of color take their seat at the table. Really, really cool stuff that they're working on. And on Wednesday, my friend Wendy Sachs, who was on the show a few years ago talking about her latest book, is now back to talk about her documentary. First time for her producing a film. So she kindly takes us behind the scenes to talk about the production, the fundraising, the stress, and ultimately selling it to both Showtime and Amazon. How was she able to procure two streaming deals? I had to ask, and she does not leave out the details. Check out Wendy Sachs on Wednesday. Today, took a peek in the mailbag. A lot of good questions about advice for married couples, money advice for married couples, college planning for parents. How do you go about this? Do I think the real estate market's going to soften in the coming months? That was a cool, interesting question. And then finally, some questions about investing. Let's dive deeper. The first question is from Samantha. And her question is priorities and money strategies for newly married couples, Farnoosh. I love this topic. And if you listened uh, on a recent Ask Farnoosh, I did discuss a recent article that I wrote for Bloomberg Opinion about how too many wives are leaving their financial decisions to their male partners. And while this isn't exactly what you're asking me, Samantha, I will want to talk about this a little bit. And But first, let's talk about what should newlyweds or about to get married couples talk about and what should be on the table. I'll tell you, when my husband and I were moving in with one another, so before we were engaged, we moved in with one another. I know my mother wasn't so thrilled about it, but whatever. We went to our favorite bar, (laughs) our Mexican restaurant's bar, and we knew ahead of that meeting that we were going to discuss money and we were going to make it really simple and straightforward. We put on two post-its, one for him, one for me, our incomes or gross earnings for the most recent year, our debt levels, including student loans, credit card, mortgage, et cetera, our savings, how much should we have for a rainy day or just sitting and checking at that time, and our credit scores. 
And we did this. We swapped post-it notes at the same time. And we were able to level the knowledge field, at least. We both were learning the same things about each other at the same time. So there was no one with a particular leg up or anyone who could hide. And we had to sort of do it as a team. And it was fun. And honestly, at that point in our relationship, nothing really surprised us from these post-it notes. We had a good sense of our earnings because things would come up over the years. We had a good sense of what we owed. We each had mortgages, which wasn't necessarily bad debt. We'd both paid down our student loan debt, which we had discussed. But if you don't know these basic things, not nice to know things, these are must know things. So before you get married, have an understanding of each of your financial anatomies, earnings, debt, savings, retirement, what's in your 401k, what's your credit score? Because it's all going to matter when you want to say, move in together, buy a car together, get a dog together, have children together, buy a house together, rent an apartment together. You might want to layer onto that discourse things like, are you going to be receiving an inheritance? Are you you going to inherit your parents' business? Or do you anticipate having to take care of a parent? Not that it's going to make or break the relationship. It's just a good thing to know. You want to know what's down the road, right? If you're planning a trip to go from here to the supermarket, you want to know if there's a detour. You want to know if there's some construction project happening, right? It helps you to navigate that journey a lot better, a lot more smoothly, with more knowledge, more safely. So know what's ahead as well. And on that same token, talk about your goals. You know, if you do want to become a homeowner or you want to start a business or you want to have six kids or no kids, if you've got your eggs on ice, these are important things to come up, may not seem super financial related, but they are because all of these things carry price tags. And the more you are understanding of what your goals cost, the earlier you do, the more likely you can achieve them. Some tactical advice for you, Samantha, and anyone else listening curious about marriage, money, frameworks. I'm a big advocate of financial independence in the relationship. Sometimes you will work, sometimes you won't, but always have your own cushion, always have your own nest egg, even if it's just a few thousand dollars at a time, but it should be in your bank account. In every relationship, there are three financial bank accounts at minimum, your account, my account, and our account. The stuff that you agree to pay together as a team towards your mortgage, your rent, your car payments, childcare, food, et cetera, that can all go into your joint account, that money on a month to month basis. You have a, you all have a running sense of like how much you need in checking, right? In order to cover all your bills, that's your joint account perhaps. And then separately, you each have independent accounts. They're not, you know, uh, offshore accounts. These are perhaps also at the same bank that you share, but it's just, it's really so that you can silo it out, feel more independent and you don't have to ask for permission to make a purchase or get a haircut or whatever. It's important to have your own stash. Men, women, we need our own stashes because your money equates to your options. And whether it's a good situation or a bad situation that you find yourself in, that money can come to your rescue. I have worked with many couples over the years through my television work, through workshopping, who have financial issues. We all know that money issues in a marriage can be implosive. And when I dig further into their issues, I often discover that there is a power struggle around the money. 
And then I look further and I ask further and I probe further and I discovered that there is one bank account, which to them at the time may have seemed like the matrimonial thing to do. It's like one bed, one bank account. We're in this together. I think that everyone needs to have their own stash. Independence is critical, especially our generation. Our generation where two people are coming together, typically with their own financial baggage, and the baggage can have good stuff in it and also some weird stuff in there. But, you know, to have your separation is important. You've been used to making your own financial decisions for a long time. And now you're in a partnership. It's hard to give up some of that independent license. It's not to say that you're going to derail or you're going to go rogue in the relationship financially, but it's just so that, you know, you feel like you have your own piece of the pie. And I tell you, emotionally and tactically, it goes a very long way in creating harmony in the relationship. You're not fighting as much. There's not as much of a power struggle. Everybody feels a little bit more solvent, personally, financially solvent. It's all good. Now, with the article I wrote recently that was based on a piece of research that came out this summer about how too many women, about half of female population that's married in this country says that they defer long-term financial planning decisions to their male spouse. Do you know what was the number one generation who does this? Millennial women. Not the generation that is synonymous with burying their head in the sand, right? This is a generation that's very outspoken, that seems to understand the importance of financial independence. And yet, this goes out to everybody, but in particular women who may be listening, who are about to get married, don't become that statistic. Make sure that there is transparency in the relationship when it comes to financial decisions. Of course, naturally, one person may fall into the role, into the more primary role of making decisions that have to do with like retirement and insurance planning and et cetera. But that is not to say that the other person turns their eye or buries their head in the sand or doesn't ask questions. You got to ask questions. If your partner, for some reason, doesn't want to share this role with you, mm, I'm a little curious as to why. Dig deeper. This stuff doesn't have to be hard. It really doesn't, especially nowadays with technology. My husband and I share apps that show our bank account information. We have, you know, a lot of transparency. And we talk about money, the little stuff and the big stuff all the time, you know, so it doesn't feel like we have to have this moment every month to talk about money. We just talk about it as it happens and that works for us. But truly, you got to find what works for you. Every relationship is different. Every relationship dynamic is going to be different. Find your groove. But along the way, these are the things that I think every relationship needs is transparency, communication, understanding of each other's goals, understanding of each other's financial realities and teamwork. No one is better at money than the other person. That is BS. If you think that, mm-mm. Keep listening to this podcast. All right, Meg has a question. How much should we contribute towards 529 college funds? Ooh, another fun question. <laughs> um, I actually just wrote a piece for Parents Magazine. It's coming out in January on the biggest financial to-dos that parents should put on their to-do list when your kids are maybe not even born yet or still relatively young or still young. And of course, saving for college is on that list. It's not the first thing on that list. It's not even the second thing on the list. I think too often parents will compromise or will say it's okay to compromise their retirement savings to fund 
the college fund. And that's a big mistake. There's no Stafford loan for retirees. There's no scholarship when you turn 65. It's like you you just have to save your money. For the most part, it's all on us. College, on the other hand, right? There's so many ways to go to college and find money to go to college. You can go to school part-time. You can start out at community college first and then go to a four-year school. You can skip a year you know, work, raise money, and then go to school. You can get scholarships, you can get grants, and you can get affordable student loans. Don't go crazy. But my point is, I want parents to remember all of that when they're college planning. And I think, you know, it's helpful to sort of first see where college prices could be at when your child is at that point. We did the same thing for our kids when they were born or even a little bit before they were born, we started college planning and we said, okay, so if our child you know, in 18 years or in 19 years, what will college cost in the future? And there are college cost estimators out there. Basically, they assume a five to 6% growth rate for tuition prices, which is a ridiculous, but that's where we're at, everybody. Hopefully that will change, but let's just work with reality here. So first figure out what are your college aspirations for your kid? Of course, everybody might say they want to send their kid to Stanford or Harvard, but what else, right? My husband and I both went to Penn State. We'd be exceptionally happy if our children decided to go to Penn State. It's a great school. It's a great value. In our calculations, we just assumed that. And truthfully, it's not to say that if our kids decide to go to a more expensive school, they're all on their own. But again, we were a little bit more conservative in our college savings approach because you know, we knew that we could have enough for a really good public school if that's where they wanted to go. And then once we arrive at college and they want to go to somewhere more expensive, we're going to have a conversation about that and see if that's even worth it. And if that's still the place they want to go at that point, maybe we shell out more money or our child will work or will apply for scholarships or grants. But it's not like college is no longer a possibility, right? We've done all, we've done about 80% of the work. And then the 20 other 20% potentially will need to be figured out. And I'm all for, honestly, young adults taking out a little bit of student loan debt. I know I'm going to get hate mail over this. But if that is the way you need to go to college, because that money just doesn't exist elsewhere, Applying for like a five or ten or fifteen thousand dollar federal student loan, it's not going to kill you. And actually, it might make the child more invested in their educational experience because now they have that debt and they will be accountable to that debt when they graduate. It will make sure that they get a job when they graduate. It's you know, at least I, I can't say that's going to be true for every kid. That it's going to be a light in their, it's going to light their fire, but. I think that there's something to be said about knowing you're accountable, financially accountable uh, for part of your education. And some parents intentionally have their kids take out a little bit of student loan debt. It helps you build credit. Again, nothing crazy, enough where you could probably pay it down within the few, first few years of, out of being out of school and having a job. In other cases, parents, they just would love to send their school, kids to school, to their dream schools for free. And that's a really important value to them. So figuring out what are your values, what kind of college scenario do you envision for your child? Uh, of course, you're not going to be able to control that, but you know, start, you, you got to have a starting place. And our starting place was public school, probably paying out of state tuition and then working backwards to say, okay, how much per month should we put into this 529 so that with the assumed growth rate in the 529 plan, 
will we be near where we need to be in 18 or 20 years? And we came to the conclusion that it was about $500 a month. And we do this for every child, $500 a month, come rain or shine, $500 a month into the 529 plan. So that's the calculus. What are your college values as a parent? Do you have to send your kid to college for free because you just have to? But please don't compromise your retirement for it. Or are you okay with sort of getting them 75% there and then the other 25% figuring out a strategy closer to the day of college, whether that's a combination of loans and scholarships and grants, your child working or choosing a different, more affordable school, and then figuring out what that cost could be in the next 20 years. All the calculators are online. You can go to a site like collegecost.ed.gov, collegesavings.org, savingforcollege.com. All of these sites have calculators that'll plug and chug for you. And you will see what your monthly input should be from now till then. It's not guaranteed, obviously, because a 529 plan, the money gets invested in the market, but it's a smart fund. It it reduces your risk the closer you get to the college years. You're not going to be as heavily invested in the market in year 17 of 18, right? But, but you will be heavily invested in stocks in year one and two. Okay, Speak My Geek says, do you think that the housing market's going to soften or correct uh, soon? this year or early next year? Well, I will say a lot of what fueled the frenzy in the spring and summer and fall of 2020 was the pandemic, right? And really not seeing an end to having to work from home and school from home and everything from home. And so everybody wanted a nicer home and maybe possibly relocate to a different state. So that's really what added more of a tailwind to the buying frenzy. Now we have a lot of hope and optimism around vaccines. We have a new administration. I don't know if there's going to be as much fervor and demand for new homes, but I will say that the housing supply is still far below where normal demand is for homes. Interest rates are still very low, which makes it attractive time to borrow for a mortgage, a car loan, all of those things. And I do think that some of the patterns that we saw take place in the pandemic, like people working from home, that's not going to be an immediate change, right? We have been hearing from companies that say, we're going to go remote indefinitely, right? Or at least through 2021. And we're actually going to give employees the option to work from home forever. So I think working from home is going to become increasingly normal, even in a post-pandemic world, which would also, again, create more interest in buying homes that are more amenable to people with those lifestyles. And also, let's face it, the spring is coming and the spring is usually a very hot time to list. I have a neighbor here in town who listed her home this past spring, didn't get any bites or maybe didn't get the offers that she would have liked. I think the house needed a lot of work. So she spent the entire fall and winter working on the house. Plans to relist it, not in December when no one's buying or fewer people are buying, but probably again in March, April, May when there is more of that demand. And the reason there's more demand in those spring months is because homes look prettier when the weather gets warmer, the flowers are blooming, and then parents that want to come and start the new school year there, they need to then really start moving in the spring, uh, to summer to, to make that timeline happen. So short answer, I don't see it correcting so much or softening so much in the next 
three to six months or maybe even the next year. I think there's going to be a little bit of a cooling. Like, I don't think homes are going to go for twice their asking price, which is what we saw in some cases here in New Jersey. Like, totally ridiculous. Some of these homes, I will say, they will never see those prices again. Sorry. Will they go down 50%, 25%? I don't think so. I think uh, we're going to see prices soften a little bit, but not to the extent that we're going to see a complete reversal of the price hikes. That makes sense. All right. Final question from Laura. She says, I have a couple of index funds that have done pretty well. So what do I do now? Do I just hold on to them forever and keep investing more? Or do I sell the funds? Or do I withdraw at least the profits and reinvest them in something else? So Laura, I'm not really sure what your goal is here, right? We often talk on the show about investing in the context of retirement and saving for your future and, you know, not worrying so much about where your investments are at on a particular Wednesday and whether you should do something about it. I think it's great news that your index funds have done so well. I think you just stay the course. And I know that's hypocritical of me because I totally changed my investments a little bit this summer. I reduced my stock exposure in my retirement account, but I didn't do it in a way that felt transactional to me. I I was making a long-term choice. I, I had realized that after 20 years of investing in my portfolio in a certain way, that it was time to reassess the risk tolerance of that portfolio. Given that my life had changed, I'd become the breadwinner in my marriage, two kids now instead of zero, a mortgage, all of it. And I would not be comfortable seeing huge swings in the portfolio from here on out. Um, Of course, I understand things are going to be volatile at times, but I didn't want to take on as much risk. So I dialed back the stock exposure and instead added more cash to my contributions monthly so that I could still hit or get close to my original retirement target knowing that with less risk comes less reward. So I got to put more into this fund or this, you know, in this case, the, my SEP IRA, which is made up of a bunch of ETFs and index funds. I wouldn't sell it. I think if, if I'm, I'm sensing this might be for retirement or for your future. And, and in that case, it's not about transacting when things are good or when things are bad. If you really want to make a shift in your approach to investing because of a life change like I did, then that's one thing. But making a decision to sell your index fund or there are going to be tax implications to this as well. FYI. So, you know, that's another reason why it benefits you to hold on to the investments and cash out when you're in a lower tax bracket, i.e. in retirement, usually when you're not making as much money. So I'm not a fan of making moves in your funds. I would say stay the course. And if you do want to invest more because you have a bigger capacity to invest at some point, sure, add more to that fund or open up other index funds. Diversifying your portfolio is always a good thing. But I appreciate your question. All right. And that is a wrap, my friends. Thanks so much for sticking with me on this Friday. I can't believe it's December, right? December 4th. We're going to get our Christmas tree this weekend and we're going to post some pictures on the Instagrams. Make sure you're following me there at Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. I hope your weekend is so money. 